0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Center for South Asia podcast. I am Lalita Duperon, the Associate Director in the Center. All our podcasts and information about the Center are available at SouthAsia.Stanford.edu. I am joined today by Anuba Anushri, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Stanford, studying the intellectual history of the colonial state and the emergence of nationalism in South Asia. She is joining me virtually from Delhi, where it's actually quite late right now. Uh, Anubha, thank you so much for making time in your evening to have this
1: conversation with me. Hello, Lalita. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to share my experiences and research with the academic community at Stanford.
0: It's great to have you. Uh, So curious, you have been in India since the lockdown uh, mid-March of this year give us an update, how is the COVID situation and and what are the ways in which you have coped with the restrictions in India, which I believe are quite severe.
1: Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, So yeah, I have been in India for the past few months now and due to the travel restrictions, um, I've been unable to travel back to uh, the the US uh, and to Stanford campus. Indeed, uh, talking with you makes me partly nostalgic and partly stressed for all the good reasons. (laughs) Um, You know, um, the Oxford study, uh, there's an Oxford study which ranks the lockdown in India as number one. Uh, Even the careless adoption of the nomenclature lockdown, uh, which is widely used in media, in in popular media in India, it is the the adoption of this nomenclature of lockdown is so uncharacteristic, um, which is so uncharacteristic of the current ruling dispensation, Uh, uh, it's a contrast to terms that are used in the U.S., such as shelter-in-place and stay-at-home. And uh, the use of this term is also indicative of the absolute and top-down perspective that has shaped the broader policy of imposing this lockdown.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: Madiha Akhtar's podcast has already eloquently highlighted the historical antecedents of these policies in the subcontinent. I would like to add to what she said uh, in that the current regime's assessment of the coronavirus threat was not just about safeguarding people from the virus, but also gaining political mileage out of the situation. In imposing such an uncreative and ill-thought-out lockdown, we had no domestic travel for more than two months, and the crisis of the migrant laborers walking to their homes in Bihar, a region I'm from, is now internationally known. It's internationally known. And this regime, with its penchant for spectacular and unpredictable decisions, assumed that the lockdown itself would take care of the virus. But the virus knows better, as most of these leaders are discovering. Um, now we have rising numbers. We have exponential increase in um, coronavirus cases in India. The death toll is, if you, officially, if you believe the official numbers, the death toll is, 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 is also um, increasing exponentially. And we were given just uh, a short notice of four hours uh, to, um, to, uh, to impose this lockdown. And uh, I think this was motivated by the idea of gaining international acclaim and domestic prestige. Um, there is a saying in our language which roughly translates as um, just by shutting its eyes, the pigeon assumes that there is no threat from the predatory cat. Uh, and I uh, think today we are like that pigeon who wishes the cat, the coronavirus cat, away by just shutting its eyes, in this case, Modi's eyes. Um, I don't particularly enjoy talking about coronavirus in the language of combat and war, mm-hmm. but the analogy was far too close for me to resist. Uh, three months uh, after the lockdown, we have more, more than 500,000 cases of coronavirus. Uh, And then, of course, there are people uh, who would say, what are the options that the government has? Uh, And I believe that is the work of the politicians and the bureaucrats, the experts. And I'm not an expert to provide any solutions here, but I do think there is a place for me, for people like me, to critique this unilateral decision. Uh, As a graduate student with uh, stakes in two countries which are worst affected by the pandemic, the U.S. and India, I find myself both distressed um, and uh, also paradoxically relaxed at the situation, resigned if you, if you like, uh, to some extent. I live with my parents uh, currently and I'm the primary caregiver. It has been a battle for me trying to balance between focusing on my dissertation and academic commitments and caring for them. Uh, it, is a remar- it is remarkable how much uh, the attention of international media has been on children and the upper class upper-class, and in, in India's case, upper-caste straight family model as primary victims of stay-at-home. Old people with their needs for regular medical attention have been completely ignored by this media. At least in India, there's no conversation on uh, kind of, uh, the lack of medical resources uh, for, people, uh, for aging people. Living with my parents so extensively for the first time in my adult life has made me realize that there is a need for us to rethink the models of care we have in popular imagination. Old people are not cute. They are not as adaptable and flexible as I'm discovering in the case of my parents. Uh, it's usually, are. and with the hospitals in utter chaos across most parts of the world, getting their medical care uh, has been a challenge, a personal challenge for me. I have now learned some basic medical and first aid steps to help my parents in times of emergency needs. Uh, the good news is I'm quickly developing an alternative career out of this. Uh, so with the academic job scenario looking as gloomy as it is uh, for international students, I might not be very unhappy with the outcome here.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're able to give it some kind of a, a positive spin. Um, thank you, that was such a comprehensive answer and and again thank you for making time to speak to me i know that you have you have a lot of your plate uh, right now um Mm -hmm. and uh you you certainly do i was thinking about the 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 wording of lockdown i mean my we were talking earlier before we started recording about our various languages or the various englishes that we operate in and Mm -hmm. i think i have used lockdown is of course related to india but i think i've used it with my dutch family and i wonder if that was very confusing to Mm -hmm. them Um, Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean the issue of political mileage. I think that plays. You're not in yeah. the United states right now, but it's it's uh, it's very visible uh, outside uh, how how politicized um, you know what we think of as basic health. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's another topic. But thank you for touching upon all these points. Uh, you mentioned you know as a grad student, you're kind of resigned to the situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: as yeah, so a gratitude, and tell us a little bit more. You're um, in the Department of History, you're also a former WISH Fellow in the Center for South Asia. How did you become interested in the history of South Asia?
1: Um, yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great question, um, and I, I hope to do justice to such a, uh, such a big uh, and very personal question. question. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, so before coming to Stanford, I was a student of English literature at Delhi University and uh, then taught literary studies to undergraduates and postgraduates for some time. Um, the short answer is I transitioned to history because I guess I got bored with teaching and studying literature, uh, but no, I, I don't believe I'm bored with literature. Uh, One of my chapters, my third chapter, actually is about literary representations of corruption in Hindi satires of the 1940s and 1950s. Can't wait to read it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, way to write it. I'm still still working on that chapter. Um, I'm still uh, trying to uh, figure out my last chapter at the moment. But apart from that, I'm also constantly reading works of fiction. I've just recently ordered A Burning by Megha Majumdar. It's, a, it's a, I've read great reviews of it. Uh, all of this is to say that transitioning to history was not intuitive, uh, not something that I was trained for. Um, I got interested in studying history because I realized that much of what we know about ourselves are our literary and cultural selves our political and ethnic identities derive from our knowledge of our past. But my background in literature also helped me realize that pasts are like tenants in a house. Uh, we can change our past just as we can push out a tenant we do not particularly like or encourage them to stay. If we relish the extra income we can extract out of them for accommodating our pets. So my inroads into the discipline of history has been very much shaped by my understanding that past is also narrative, not so much as a fiction, my historian friends would protest, but stories and the way we tell these stories are crucial to how we order and present our past to ourselves and others. I come from a region in India where we are told, uh, we were told growing up um, in this region, that finding a good husband was our best chance of getting out of the horrible fact of being born as a female. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, finding resources in my past was therefore very critical. Uh, Not many people know about this, but one of the first public schools uh, in the entire region was opened in my district. Uh, District is is equivalent of a county in the US, and I come from Bhagalpur district in Bihar. I was born and raised there, and the official female literacy rate still hovers to about 65%, optimistically speaking. Uh, this school, this public school, was inaugurated by a Muslim woman, Begum Jahan Malawi, in 1862. Uh, again, Asia's first lady doctor, uh, Kadambuni Ganguly, was a student of a school in Bhagalpur in late 19th century. Rukaiya Shekhawat Hussain, the famous feminist ideologue of early 20th century and author of Sultana's Dreams, was raised in 1910's Bahadur. Despite having a litany of prestigious names and scholars, even people in India do not know about their backgrounds, the backgrounds of these people. Women and men in Bihar just do not have role models. I did not have role models. Um, Our role models are often from different contexts and of different people. Correct. That is because uh, institutional and civil patronage for historical knowledge and literature has been declining in Bihar for quite some time in the face of utter poverty and systemic ignorance. Uh, Growing up in Bihar, I was acutely aware of the situation, the situation where past is just an empty room. I started thinking about how to construct role models for my fellow citizens. My interest in literature and history stems from this desire to bridge the gaps in people's knowledge about Bihar, to repopulate that empty room, if you will. Mm. Wow, that's so fascinating! Uh, right, and uh, then I, I believe that there is another macro perspective uh, to my interest, to my um, you know, com- my my um, interest in in developing. Um, or transitioning to history, developing myself as a historian. I think there is a similar tendency that shapes the place of history of South Asia in the global hierarchy of past, in what I call as the global hierarchy of past. Uh, The prevailing Eurocentrism of several fields in the discipline of history, not just means that everything is seen through European lenses. It also means as a famous uh, literary theorist reminds us, it also means that, such a Eurocentrism obs- obscures several non-European global or intercontinental connections. Uh, does not many of us know that Raja Ram Mohan Roy, um, the famous Bengali um, champion of the early 19th century, was very much inspired by the anti-colonial struggles of leaders such as Simon Bolivar and avidly exchanged letters with his group of men. Uh, Similarly, Girindra uh, Shekhar Bose, uh, the first president of the Indian Psychoanalytical Society, was one of the first challengers to Sigmund Freud's Oedipal Theory, uh, which was debunked by European um, psychoanalysts much later, and this is still 1920s, and he corresponded with Freud uh, for more than 20 years. Uh, J.P., one of the J. Prakash Narayan, is fondly in popular imagination called as JP, uh, J. Prakash Narayan, he's one of the figures I work on in my fourth chapter. Uh, He has traveled to many parts of of Southeast Asia and knew at least three different languages from that part of the world. Uh, But the historians of South Asia themselves are very much focused on Eurocentric dimensions of our past. And it is time, I think, we re-narrate that. Uh, so from a personal as well as professional points of view, it makes sense for me to study history to at least recuperate voices that were lost to time or readjust the blinds so that we could see some of the more obscured relationships in a novel way.
0: We are certainly in a, in a moment uh, that, that all of that is really being questioned uh, you know, now, <laughs> long ago. Do, uh, I think we will agree, but what are what knowledges we have and how they have been shaped uh, by mm-hmm. colonial past and colonial knowledge? Uh, I think mm-hmm. it, it's kind of all up for debate right now. And I'm um, even as the beneficiary myself, obviously, of a very uh, particular exclusive colonial education, I'm very excited to have these conversations and, and to see that, that really being critiqued and unpacked everywhere now. Uh, it's, right. great, and it's great and I'm so glad you're writing on it. Um, I just finished A Burning and I have to say Anubha, um it's a great book. I can't wait for you to have read it and for us to have a conversation about it. I have some mis- misgivings and I just, I'm <laughs> excited that it's on your list. It's great,
1: uh, but right. I, I need to process it. So read it. <laughs> right. awesome. right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm looking forward to, uh, like we were just saying, uh, before we started recording our conversation, um, I'm looking forward to Amazon delivering on time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the novel.
0: You will. I'm sure you will uh, enjoy it. It's extremely well written. All right. Now, speaking of writing, uh, the title of your dissertation uh, is uh, The Moral Republic, Corruption in Colonial and Post-Colonial India. Um, I think you've touched upon some of this already, but can you give us the kind of overview of your project?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, again, I hope my advisor is listening in. Um, and Probably. We... They're the yes. Think that they are. <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, extremely encouraging, uh, although it stresses me a, a bit, a tiny bit. Uh, yes, so, so my dissertation project also draws uh, from my personal background. Um, Bihar is considered as one of the most corrupt states in India and Biharis are known for their moral torpitude, so be careful of me. Uh, Yet some of the most strong and popular campaigns against corruption in recent history of India has also emerged from Bihar. Uh, So my project is an examination of various dimensions of corruption and maleficence uh, in both colonial and post-colonial India. Um, I'm not focusing on Bihar except for my fourth chapter where I look at the specific campaign uh, which uh, was a um, very strong anti-corruption campaign uh, initiated in in and about 1972, and which led uh, broadly to the imposition of uh, the first and the only emergency uh, in 1975. Except that I believe that we are we are living in a state of emergency right now as well. But that's a conversation for another time. Uh, Uh, But um, we consider going back to what I was talking about uh, vis-a-vis my project, uh, we consider uh, almost axiomatically, we see corruption as abuse of public office or private gain. Mm -hmm. Um, And my project draws from archival research in Britain and India and situates corruption within the wider matrix of historical and cultural relations uh, that have undergirded the moral and political economy in India as opposed to thinking of corruption within the frame of financial and political utility which is to say that corruption is thought of as a pathological outcome for specific monetary gains Uh, my project presents systemic everyday corruption as a modality that allows people to articulate forms of moral and social solidarity so one i don't focus on broad big corruptions big Big corruption scandals. I focus on everyday corruption, uh, bribery, if you like. It has been called bribery, and there's a section in my dissertation which talks about why the why the equivalence between bribery and corruption is is a misleading equivalence, and we need to unpack that. Uh, I argue that understanding corruption as a process of gaining social ascendance as a form of social mobility has significant implications for policy research on corruption and poverty, which typically treats corruption as an ahistorical and transactional dysfunction. In India, especially in contemporary India, the tendency is to over-legislate the institutional side of corruption to the detriment of local accountability and communication structures that could be profitably utilized to address corruption. Uh, So my model uh, hopes to combine the history of standardization practices of modern institutions, how modern institutions in India were standardized with localized nuances of morality and legitimacy that challenges these practices. Uh, Paying attention to the various historically specific forms of influence, so, a form of influence very, um, uh, very prevalent in my part of the world is called pervi, which roughly translates as approach, but signifies the level of approach in specific types of institutions. Uh, influence and patronage, patronage also sometimes uh, is, uh, is, is visible through caste and kinship ties. Um, And I look at these networks of of influence and patronage uh, to expand the scope of corruption and include how power is distributed in Indian society and its irreconcilability with specific forms of political and legislative modernity. Such a perspective allows us to appreciate the continued uh, statistical conundrum of higher economic growth with ever increasing surges in corruption since post-liberalization India, which is 1991. Um, I also show in my project how corruption is um, connected with our anti-colonial past, that thinking about corruption only as pathology ignores. In my view, the prevalence of corruption in states such as Bihar is an index of how much the state has remained unchanged from the colonial time period. Everyday corruption is also in some cases an act of subversion of the state that still believes in dictating laws from the top. Um, And in my reading, corruption is uh, therefore a process through which Indian state becomes accessible and negotiable to common citizens. Uh, Corruption produces, um, as I examine in my chapter two, uh, this is an example of Arthur Crawford, uh, who was a very highly reputed, well-established commissioner uh, in 1895 in Bombay, in Mumbai, contemporary Mumbai. Um, And I I argue in that chapter that corruption actually produced forms of agencies that cannot be accounted through a formal and transactional account of citizenship. Uh, The characters in my account are not passive subjects who are at the receiving end of the corrupt state. Most of my chapters focus on how these actors participate in corruption to subvert structures of power and assert agency. In thinking of the diverse ways by which people connect with the state, my dissertation also underlines the compositional aspect of a democratic state, such as India, a state which does not exist as a unidirectional, sorry, a state which exists not as a unidirectional monolith, but composed by different motivations of power and authority. I hope I have answered your question adequately.
0: Um, I'm thinking so hard. I have to always remind myself I'm doing a podcast here. This is not my time to be thinking.
1: When, <laughs> I'm I, doing
0: when it. I listen I'm again, that, that's my, my thinking time. Um, this, this framing of, of corruption as access of, of sorts is uh, something I, um, mm-hmm. I'm very interested in. It's also a very difficult time, or maybe a very um, productive time, is a better way of looking at it, to be theorizing about the state and what it means.
1: Um, mm-hmm. I think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's right yeah
0: and it's like we think the state is and does and what agreements there are around that have all been kind of they've all kind of fallen by the wayside they've all been um, Mm -hmm. questioned in good and not so good ways
1: Mm -hmm. that's right
0: um, let's talk a little bit more then about history and corruption. How do you think that the, the knowing the history of corruption uh, helps mm-hmm. us uh, address some of the economic and political challenges contemporary South Asia? I feel that, um, well, in India in particular, but perhaps in all of South Asia, you know, corruption is one of those topics that always comes up. You say that as well. And um, can you say more about larger South Asia? You can also keep it focused on India if you feel that's where... Uh, most of your expertise lies, but how does knowing the history helps us help us
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I think um, you know like I said earlier it 's important to understand the history of corruption because any historical perspective adds uh, to the kinds of um, layers uh, to a particular phenomena it, it adds to the it consolidates the kind of, or sometimes ruptures, not just consolidate, but ruptures, uh, the kinds of uh, things we know, the way we know, and what we know. Uh, So history is in in a very macro, at a very macro level, it's a very important, uh, if you like, framing device for us to access a phenomena, a topic, a relationship, uh, or even emotions these days, right? Uh, There is a robust scholarship now on history of emotions. Uh, Specifically, uh, understanding the history of corruption uh, as a historical phenomena is very crucial because corruption has been defined by historical forces that organized our notions of law, state, sovereignty, and also people and morality. We have uh, no um, historical scholarship. I mean, there there is some scholarship on uh, the history of moral relations or morality or moral norms, uh, from European perspective, there, but there's almost nothing uh, when you look at uh, questions of issues of public morality and uh, collective virtue uh, vis-a-vis uh, South Asia. Uh, the role of public morality has, has been uh, considered in very ahistorical way, but it has not remained a constant. Uh, The relationship between our morality and politics has been shaped, I argue, by racial and historical asymmetries. Racial hierarchies impact our understanding of moral and immoral, uh, and corrupt or non-corrupt behavior, uh, uh, virtuous behavior. Race, as all of us know more than ever, is a historical construction of our biologies. In the 18th and 19th century, it were the Indians who were considered as corrupt by, by the colonial state. Today, many other non-European countries have joined the club. Uh, Just look at some of the media narratives around Zimbabwe and its difference with how the US is presented, right? The president of Zimbabwe was being prosecuted at about the same time that Mueller investigations were unfolding in the US. But in the case of Zimbabwe, we were flooded with hideous images of massive weapons in the president's bathrooms, hidden treasures, and gold on the president's body. On the other hand, in the case of Trump's overreach, we saw serious looking bureaucrats, very drab, I must say. Uh, they were very serious and drab looking bureaucrats and court officers, very articulate media representatives and uh, concerned activi- activists trying to expose him. In the end, uh, in, in the popular imagination, we concluded that while in the US, corruption was just provisional and contained to one person, in this case, Trump, Zimbabwe was a basket case of monstrous corruption, of systemic corruption, and nothing could be done to salvage uh, the country. I think to understand these rather disconnected representations, one needs to unpack uh, the deeper moral racism, I believe I call it as moral racism, that lurks in these stories. The racism emanates from the belief that the US, and by analogy, the West is somehow a coherent rational state, and people like Trump are only an aberration. Uh, however, as my work shows with examples from the colonial context in India, I focus on the writings of Thomas Macaulay and William Bentinck in my first chapter, who were both uh, great colonial administrators in early 19th century India. And I use their examples to show that this narrative around corruption was only developed in the 19th century. Secondly, what intrigues me in my project is the question of how did corruption become equated with financial crimes? I show that 19th century corruption was less about the character of the public officers and more about disciplining and redesigning official relationships in monetary terms. Uh, British corruption was systematically disengaged uh, from its anthropological characterization, so corruption was not presented as a moral failure. Uh, and it was increasingly presented as an economic failure, as an economic irregularity. Right. Uh, and then, of course, there was also the simultaneous rhetoric of serendipity and discovery uh, in instances of corruption that played a crucial role in making the British distance themselves and disengage themselves from, corruption, uh, from their corruption and project it as the corruption of the natives. Uh, and, uh, of course, this mechanism of distancing was, like I said, it hinged on presenting Indians as morally and naturally corrupt and corrupting. And the British were presented as supine and passive and at the receiving end of the scheming greedy natives. Correct, yes. uh, the natives, Macaulay argues, that corrupted the British. Um, so this historical interpretation of corruption allows us to better situate contemporary corruption, where these strategies of displacement are constantly invoked to justify uh, moral, racial, and ethnic superiority.
0: I'm, I'm thinking while you're talking about the um, Catherine field's work on, the, on, on how uh, the British portrayed um, court rulers in terms of um, performance and music as the corrupting influence, and it's always this uh, I think it's uh, wine women and music uh, yes. and I've come across that in, in my own work as well this, this idea this is corrupting and it's not completely what you're saying, but it's fitting into that same kind of framing of, of a corruption being mm-hmm. a
1: native. Um, mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, number of uh, Mughal, I mean, number of uh, local kings, when the British start establishing themselves, a number of uh, rulers, uh, local rulers, were uh, dismissed uh, or their uh, sovereignties were severely compromised, precisely by labeling them as corruption as corrupt. But one thing to think about, as as we progress in this in this discourse, is how do British start, uh, why do British or Eurocentric imagination of corruption is always um, presented in terms of excess um, and, and uh, excess of, um, mor- uh, uh, excess of um, certain moral conventions and so greed. Uh, um, so sorry, um, I, I, what I wanted to draw your attention towards is uh, the idea that corruption is presented as excess by the British only when it comes to uh, the natives, the colonized natives.
0: Absolutely, yes. Um, and and uh, 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 an uncontrollability, I think, is very much the thread we get through that. Um, so many questions, but I'm going to uh, wrap up with one. It's a massive question. So I'm going to ask Sorry, I just muted myself. That is just to show our audience, this is live. (laughs) We're doing this in real time. Uh, Apologies for that. Um, Yes, I'm gonna ask you to be as concise as possible to this massive question I'm about to post to you, uh, but one I'm very curious about. How is, in your view, corruption connected with nationalism? Uh, Tell us a little more how corruption in India has fostered nationalism, can, can you do that? I understand it's a big question, but I really would like to hear um, your view on it.
1: Right, thank you. Uh, yeah, this, this is, uh, I have to say my favorite, uh, because it brings us right to uh, our current scenario. Right. Um, the relationship between corruption and nationalism is obvious to anyone who studies modern South Asia. Uh, if you look at the, composite, the, the composition of our leaders, uh, the, leaders uh, ranging from Nepal to Sri Lanka to Pakistan and, of course, to Narendra Modi in India. Uh, these leaders, Mahindra Rajpaksha in Sri Lanka, KP Oli in Nepal, Imran Khan in Pakistan, and then, of course, Modi in India, they came expressly with the mandate of uprooting corruption and, quote unquote, bringing back black money stowed away in foreign shores. Uh, in fact, uh, Talking about India specifically, the the previous Congress government of Manmohan Singh had already lost a huge moral ground by 2012, uh, due to the many corruption scandals that robbed its government, paving the way for the spectacular victory of Modi in 2014. So that was the first uh, term. Modi's first term was in 2014. And he won elections again on 2019. And no surprises for guessing, even in 2019, he, 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 he was still uh, talking about bringing the black money back. Uh, So corruption is is definitely very much tied to his politics of gaining um, uh, popularity uh, amongst people and winning elections. Uh, Corruption scandals have consolidated nationalist sentiments. Uh, But there is, and that's an obvious argument to make in the case of Modi and Imran Khan and and Rajpaksa and Uli. Uh, But there is another aspect of corruption that escapes this understanding of the relationship between nationalist populism and corruption. Uh, The 2013 campaign against corruption and even the 1974 Jaya Prakash anti-corruption campaign, which is called JP uh, campaign, uh, both studying that campaign uh, has revealed to me that what uh, these campaigns ended up galvanizing is a kind of, uh, is, is the notion of masculine patronage. Uh, in these mo- movements, we encountered the nourishment of upper class and caste politics, masquerading as patriotism and condoning the idea of a virile masculinity, of virile salvaging masculinity. Uh, Thus, the language of today's anti-corruption movements is very much embedded in the language of sexual politics of rescuing the mother India, the mother nation. Right. Uh, Modi, in his speech of 2013, and I'm uh, going back and forth in time uh, because we have limited time here and I want to cover so much more, (laughs) but Modi in his speech of 2013 talked about restoring the tattered dignity of mother India. Mm. by bringing back the money uh, from foreign shows, black money from the foreign shows, and this sexual politics, uh, like I said, also connects with the stern masculinity of the anti-corruption campaigns led by J.P., where austerity and abstinence were celebrated as political virtues. So again, going back to this notion that corruption is an excess, but also thinking with what kinds of masculine models did anti-corruption campaigns eventually celebrate? Uh, or galvanize. Um, Of course, women and people of different sexual orientations remained outside this important conversation amongst men at best. At worst, uh, women and people of different sexual orientations are minor irritants in this heady party of what I call as heady party of puritanism, uh, history tells us that corruption was first used in sexual and medical discourses, and its subjects were, of course, women and people who did not conform to mainstream sexual orientations. Uh, that still remains the case, uh, only the narrative around it has shifted. Thus, in emphasizing certain kinds of puritanical dispositions, um, anti corruption movements have au- augmented certain kinds of patriarchal and nationalist sentiments. Mm-hmm.
0: There's so much there. I, 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 did you want to say a little bit more? Am I am I cutting you off? Or are you just very mindful of the time, which I appreciate? But if you want to kind of just expound a little bit, because I want to hear more. It's it, there's so much there, and I'm so grateful to you for uh, speaking mm-hmm. about all that.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, of
0: it. Um, I'm really stuck on that now. Uh,
1: thank you. Um, that's that's encouraging. Uh, yes, one of the things that I'm I'm thinking about in my fourth chapter is the kinds of uh, politics of uh, masculine, uh, the kinds of models of masculinity that uh, get galvanized around uh, the 1972, 1974 movements, uh, anti-corruption movements. And they were not just one movement, they were uh, across different regions in India, but they kind of gathered in this, uh, around this figure, uh, JP, Uh, One of the things that um, this uh, study has revealed to me, uh, the archival work and the study has revealed to me, is that the kind of model of masculinity masculinity, um, that these campaigns eventually um, um, celebrated and galvanized again to use a word that I used earlier, uh, was that of um, abstinence and austerity. Uh, And uh, there was no place in this kind of modeling of masculinity for people who did not conform to this uh, idea of virtue of abstinence and austerity. And uh, I'm sorry, I think I have lost my thought and I'm blanking out now, Lalita. perfect Um,
0: because uh, we we are looking to wrap up. I'm, I, I want to talk to you more, but we can do that offline when you've had a chance. Mm-hmm. also know it just literally hit midnight for you. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe it's just that, that time uh, to wrap things up. Um, this idea of masculinity as austerity and, and control, and again, thinking about uh, the, the, narr- the colonial narratives around... Um, the, the courtly rulers and, and where, where music uh, and dance was so promoted, if you think about the court of Wajid Ali Shah, but there were so many others and they were always described as quote unquote effeminate. Uh, and that, this idea of um, of mm-hmm. ex- feminine and virtue as masculine. And I mean, bring that into also, if I think about the way that. Right. Victorian Britain talks about those things. Anyway, much to talk about. But in terms of the podcast, I'm going to wrap it up by thanking you so much. You were able to cram so much information in uh, about 35-40 minutes. And I know that you are uh, in compromised situations in India with uh, the quote-unquote lockdown. Uh, and taking care of your family as well, and um, also trying to continue to do your graduate work. So my very, very deep and sincere gratitude to you, Anova. I really, really appreciate you having made time to talk to me.
1: Thank you, Lalita, for offering me this opportunity to go back to my work and connect with my friends and, and my people out there. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to my project. and of course i would i look forward to having more discussion with you post the podcast
0: yes absolutely well to our listeners thank you um, we had a little bit of disturbance here and there that is just the nature of at home shelter in place quarantine lockdown <laughs> recordings of podcasts uh, so you for bearing with us Uh, all the podcasts are um, on southasia.stanford.edu, and that will take you to soundcloud there are opportunities to leave comments i believe on soundcloud you can also just email us at the center for south asia we're also go we also put the podcast on social media so that also gives everyone a chance to connect with the speakers so many ways of getting in touch with us Uh, thank you so much for being here and see you again soon